Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome everyone to episode 7 of True Blue True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Hello. Hello everyone. I was going to call you Chloe but I've had it pointed out I say that way too much. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curbing the clothes. <laughs> good self-restraint. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning. How have you been? Good, good. Um, Wednesdays rolled around quickly. I had a day that didn't go to plan, but I'm excited to be here and ready to go talk crime. Yeah, absolutely. And talking about a good guy this week, which is a excellent change of pace for us, as we alluded to last week. So I'm looking forward to it as well. Definitely. Getting into a couple of quick notes about the show. True Blue, True Crime is a weekly podcast covering Australian criminal cases. We release additional exclusive content to our Patreon supporters on a weekly to fortnightly basis. You can support the show on Patreon. The link will be in the show notes on whatever app you are listening on. Patreon is super easy. You can use your Facebook profile to sign up and support the show with a simple click, like buying something off eBay with your PayPal account. For $2 a month, you'll get exclusive Patreon content, access to Q&As, behind-the-scenes material, blooper reels, We tease the next show in our Patreon episodes as well, and you'll get 10% off in the merch store when we've got that up and running. We've got some new supporters this week, Chloe. Yes, welcome to Shane Harrop and Courtney Madigan. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. We understand that not everyone has the ability to financially support the show on that front. That's fine. We appreciate you guys listening to our regular episodes each week. There's other ways you can spread the love for us and support the show. Tell your friends and work colleagues, join our Facebook group and follow us on Instagram and share the podcast on social media. If there's some true crime groups or forums you're a member of, there might be some people in there who would like to listen. And don't forget, if you're up for it, please give us a five-star rating and write a review on iTunes or whatever app you use. We read out the five-star reviews from iTunes at the end of each episode. Before we get started today, we just wanted to advise any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners that this episode contains names, descriptions and discussions of deceased persons, which might cause sadness or distress, particularly to relatives of these people. So we encourage you to use your discretion and exercise self-care when listening to this episode. This week we're talking about Jimmy James the Aboriginal tracker who located eight-year-old Wendy Pfeiffer after she was abducted, stabbed, dumped in the bush and left for dead. We covered this case last week and while it's not a prerequisite to listen to that episode before this one today, we think it's worth listening to beforehand for an introduction and to get some context as to where this story will be taking us today. This story starts way back in the early 1900s set against the remote backdrop of the Northern Territory in Australia, at a time when our Indigenous population was encountering white European settlement, an event that would ultimately change their lives forever as their traditions and lands were being steadily absorbed. The man we're talking about spent his life doing good for everyone, not just people of his culture. 
a rare quality in a human being back then and to this very day. Jimmy James sat tied to the cart at Mount Dare Station. His friends also bound and tied to either the cart or a nearby fence. For the life of him, he couldn't figure out why this was happening. He was so confused. They'd been promised wages, and all they wanted was fair pay for their work. And they'd worked for going on eight months now. The boss had never paid them. They'd planned to go to the police in Port Augusta, to claim their pay. But the boss man sent his boys to grab them, shoving rifles and pistols in their faces. Jimmy had had a spear in his leg before, but never been shot by a gun. He was confused, very confused. But I suppose this was a very confusing time. And it was times like this that Jimmy James thought of the water and the dream time, and he wondered just wondered. Life for Jimmy wouldn't be as clear as the tracks in the dust. Jimmy James was born west of Ernabella in central Australia, near his father's waterhole, and they were part of the Pajantjajara people, which included members of both the Yakantjajara and Wongai mobs. Jimmy's father was named Walawuru, which meant eagle hawk, and his mother's name was Kanka, meaning black crow. Jimmy usually gave his birth year as 1910 or 1913 sometimes. His death certificate records his date of birth as the 7th of March 1910. At the time of his marriage in February 1947, however, he indicated that he had turned 21 on his last birthday, which would have made his birth year 1925 or 26. So we have a range of time there. The Pajantjajara people were deeply connected to the water, their ancestors, and the dream time. And so Jimmy naturally aligned with these beliefs and connections with his culture as he grew. When Jimmy was born, he was coated in charcoal mixture with goanna fat and mother's milk to protect his skin from the harsh Australian sun. This was usual practice for his mob. Jimmy would grow up in an isolated community, learning ancestral water roots, how to play and listen to dreamtime teachings, how to spot edible plants, seeds and roots, and how to track lizards, insects, and how to prepare and cook food. He'd get further into tracking with elders from the mob teaching him how to differentiate between the types of animals if they were walking or running and the direction they were moving. Jimmy also learned about traditional weaponry as he grew older. And this tied in with his younger learnings, where he'd employ knowledge of woods and plants. So we can see it was a very connected way of living, in harmony with his surroundings, a far cry from the modern world we know today. But by learning all of this, making fire, concocting insect repellents, hunting kangaroo, emu, goanna, snakes, Jimmy inadvertently had the perfect training program for what he'd later become known as a master of tracking and this was all through fun and a regular childhood and there was a lot of respect taught in the mob too i read tales of jimmy getting a whack on the hand from a wadi for taking food when it was the turn of an elder and they always had a deep connected respect for the environment which included their food they'd never cut the flesh of a kangaroo skin it or take its tail for example In the early 1930s, Jimmy and members of his mob had set up a camp at the Aldea Soak, which is a ceremonial meeting ground. This was a religiously significant area and permanent water source, so many desert mobs would meet here, host corroborees and celebrate dreamtime traditions. One day at a nearby Aldea siding, Jimmy and members of his mob walked into a scary but exciting scene that they just couldn't believe. Rows of tin sheds, iron cottages and white people. There was also a huge steaming noisy machine on steel tracks. Eventually the white people would dig some 60 wells in the Odea soak, running pipes and pumps to draw water. It was a confusing, scary 
an exciting time for Jimmy and some of the mob members. From what we understand, to at least Jimmy and some of his mob, the white way of life was viewed as something that was inevitable. So as a child, maybe 10, 12 or older, Jimmy and many of his mob moved to the mission set up for Aboriginals at the Odea siding. This place was called the United Aborigines Mission. Now it's up for debate why Jimmy and many of his mob moved to the Aldea siding voluntarily, especially when his parents didn't. They chose to return to their home turf. It was proposed maybe the lure of food or avoidance of intermob feuds was an attraction, which is possible, especially when combined with that feeling of inevitability of the new culture and way of life. But that's conjecture. What we do know is that Jimmy moved there. Now he had some freedoms here to still maintain contact with his people and traditions. From what I understand, there were these two options at the mission. You could become a dormitory kid and get regularly cooked meals and better clothing, or be a camp kid, which meant you got semi-regularly cooked meals and clothed, but just not as well as the dorm kids. But you were afforded more freedom, essentially. We are getting to a point in the story very early on that's broaching on the subject of the stolen generation. Getting into that and giving our opinions on it isn't really what this particular podcast is about. It'd be very easy to get drawn into a lengthy conversation about that. I think we can all see where this was heading. Aboriginals were indoctrinated by essentially white Europeans in the Christian faith, and this led to children being taken from their families with varying degrees of acceptance and resistance from those families. And the children were raised in these missions, taught mostly by unqualified but generally passionate people of the Christian faith. We mentioned then, Chloe, that we're not going to get deep into the political discussion on this, and we won't, but I'll just say that the thought of my daughters being taken away from my wife and I by people who think they know how to raise them better uh, does not sit well with me, putting it mildly, but uh, as you said, we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Jimmy voluntarily attended the school at the mission and the Sunday school, where he apparently turned up in good shape, well-dressed, neat and tidy. The Christian message at the mission was mixed, and it was essentially viewed as a new kind of magic. The missionaries were in charge of the rations, so they were seen as people with power, and the teaching of their God just really made him seem like a commercial provider. Alcohol was illegal at the mission, but that didn't mean Jimmy and his mates couldn't get their hands on it. White people regularly sold it illicitly. Now we're going to play a quick clip from the interactive documentary SBS produced entitled Missing about the Wendy Pfeiffer case, which we discussed last week. The voice you're going to hear, to our understanding, isn't the real Jimmy James, but a voice actor. We just wanted to play it because there's a few quotes from Jimmy directly throughout this episode, and the way he speaks, his lingo, his little chuckle as he talks is very distinctive. And I think this clip is worth hearing to get a sound in your mind of how Jimmy might have spoken. The coppers call us in long time after this country been walked all over. Plenty of trucks all mixed up. Horses, dogs, and even tyre trucks. <laughs> even through thick scrub, I can see that little fella print very clear. That's why they call me in. They say, Jimmy, mate, you have a magic gift. <laughs> yeah, no magic, boss. It's, it's just me. Yeah, madman, lay her face up. Like she was dead. Her saddle had stones in it, but little fella not dead. Hurt bad now. Gotta hurry before it's too late. Wendy! Wendy! Jimmy said one time, the train, lots of times, had big barrels of wine, and often, when it stopped at the siding, we milked the barrel with a pipe into a bucket. But one day, we were very lucky. Saw the train coming slow with a big barrel of wine, not far from the siding. I stood on the bend of the tracks, and when the train come around the corner, I jumped on the train and rolled the barrel off to my friends. No one knows because the whistle blowing at the time. Train keep going. Me and my friends have plenty drink, 
on our own in the bush. Everyone had big headache though. But this teenage tale would pale in comparison to an incident Jimmy would have with alcohol a little while later. An incident that would shock him sober for the rest of his life. While working on a cattle station in Kalgoorlie one evening, Jimmy got drunk off a bottle of methylated spirits. He ended up falling down a disused mine shaft and passing out. After about an hour, his brother found him and carried him out of the shaft and took him back to his hut. Only minutes later, the shaft exploded in a ball of flames. It turned out Jimmy's fall had disrupted some seeping gel ignite, which wasn't thought to be dangerous. It turned out it was. Jimmy was eternally grateful to his brother for saving him and fully aware of his brush with death. Jimmy never drank a drop of alcohol again after this. A short time after this, Jimmy and a few of his friends travelled to Mount Dare Station, where they worked for the station master Rex Lowe, mustering cattle for about eight months. They'd been promised wages, lodging and rations, but received none of the wages. When Jimmy and his friends realised this, their patience and trust in Lowe to do as he'd promised eventually running out, they up and left one morning, as you'd do. But Rex Lowe wasn't having that. He sent his head stockman, Bill Franklin, and station hand Sid Davenport out to retrieve them. Jimmy and his friends simply intended to go to Port Augusta Police for their rightful pay, but Lowe and his boys had other ideas. Jimmy and his friends would be captured, beaten, rifles and revolvers pointed at them, and forced to return to Mount Dare Station. They would escape on the way, but their freedom was short-lived. They were recaptured and taken to Udnadatta, where they were chained to fences and carts. When the police took them, Jimmy thought it would all end, as they'd been effectively endorsed by the state government protector of Aborigines. But it didn't end at all. They were all imprisoned on charges of assaulting Lowe and unreasonably leaving their place of employment. Doesn't sound particularly unreasonable to me, leaving because you weren't paid for eight months, but it was a different time, I suppose. This was quite an ordeal for Jimmy and his friends, but there were times of respite where they enjoyed a roof and food, but long story short, people would eventually get wind of the injustice and Lowe himself would be tried and found guilty of his conduct. He'd be fined, slap on the wrist type stuff, but Jimmy and his friends would be vindicated to some extent and reaffirmed as solid, reliable, potential employees. But this inevitably led to Jimmy and some of his friends being viewed as potential troublemakers too, despite them having clean names. I guess it was a bit of a case of mud sticking. This would leave Jimmy in the position of considering a fresh start down in South Australia, where he was convinced it would be better for him in the long term. But it was a tough time for Jimmy because it really ended an era effectively disconnecting him with his cultural area and upbringing after this. Jimmy and four of his companions would arrive in Adelaide on the 21st of January 1946, having been convinced by folks of the Odea mission to establish a new mission at Girard near Barrie. Jimmy would work building the mission with his colleagues and establishing a new life. He'd meet and marry a woman named Lily Disher and they'd start a family together. They had a girl first then unfortunately lost their second born, a baby boy, within 48 hours of birth. They stopped trying briefly, fearing another pregnancy, but went on to have two more boys, who were happy and healthy, so three children in total. Despite his growing family, things for Jimmy would continue on as normal at the mission. He'd work and earn and build up the place, and he became quite a respected person in the community. He'd teach young'uns how to track and fish, and he was a champion boomerang maker and thrower. He'd even sell boomerangs for supplementary income, a good side hustle. It was said of Jimmy, he always knew what was going on in the community. He could see more than anyone else. He could make people change their ways without saying much. Just a quiet chuckle and a look with deep eyes that went straight through you. He knew what you were thinking. He could always disperse tension in fights, just walking calmly into the middle of angry people and simmering them right down. He had spirit all the time, it was said. But despite all this, Jimmy and his people were still really under white rule at the Girard mission. They had no claim to any of the land and no involvement in any of the decision making. And into the 1950s, 
As government regimes and initiatives changed, the community was always fearful deep down when the words police or welfare check were heard. Jimmy's cultural roots were always on display, and he was elected to the board at the Girard Mission and represented the community in meetings in Adelaide. He always advocated for cultural traditions, and he'd be affectionately referred to as the Dreamtime Man of Girard. But it was Jimmy's tracking skills that shone the most, and it was these unparalleled skills that drew the most attention. It was 1948 that Jimmy and two of his relatives, Daniel Moodoo, who we spoke about last week in the Wendy Pfeiffer case, and Albert Anunga, were employed by the South Australian police to track down an alleged rapist. This guy had apparently raped a local schoolgirl, so Jimmy and his colleagues set about tracking him down. Jimmy said of catching this guy, It was too easy. The boy, a bit stupid, was wearing football boots when he did the bad thing to the girl. He was easy to follow. He not try hard to get away. Found him fishing at the river. He not catch a fish, but Jimmy catch him pretty quick. So this was his first official tracking job, although he had prior to this helped track and locate missing children at the Ildea Mission while up north. But he hadn't really thought about serious employment in the job until this time, leading into the 1950s now. By the mid-1950s, Jimmy had tracked down people lost in the bush, arsonists, escapees, and had helped solve numerous break-ins and robberies. Even local landowners started to employ him to track down wild dogs that were killing and maiming livestock or to gather evidence against suspected poachers. A few bucks here and there for his services helped him and his family at the mission, but he was constantly reminded by people outside the mission that he was just a black fella and should probably essentially be grateful for being allowed to live near them. But it was three famous South Australian crimes that Jimmy James would become involved with in a tracking capacity that would garner attention and display his talents in the public arena. The first of these being the Sundown Murders in 1957. Pete and Sally Bowman managed Glen Helen Station in the Northern Territory. They lived there with their two daughters, Wendy and Marion. In November of 1957, a family friend of theirs, a man named Thomas Whelan, travelled north to visit the Bowmans while he was on holidays. After this visit, the Bowman family, presumably looking for a holiday of their own, agreed to take a road trip back to Adelaide with Whelan. They went via Alice Springs, but for whatever reason, Pete and his daughter Marion took a flight to Adelaide from there, while Sally, daughter Wendy and Thomas Whelan continued on by car, with two family dogs going along for the ride also. This was fairly wild west terrain back at this time. The road between Alice Springs and Adelaide was not much more than an unsealed track. It was said the travelling trio had about £85 in cash on them, and they were last seen at the Calgiro homestead near the South Australian border where they'd filled their car up with petrol. They kept driving after this towards Adelaide, but they never showed. A mass-scale search for the three was undertaken in the days after their disappearance. Police and emergency services searched high and low, and even local workers from nearby properties joined in the search, but they had no luck locating any signs of the trio near where they'd been last seen. The Royal Australian Air Force was called in at this point to provide overhead assistance in the search, and eight days later, one of the RAAF's Lincoln bombers would spot the missing vehicle, which was a standard Vanguard sedan, and it would be in the scrub located near the abandoned Sundown Station. So this was about 40 miles south of where they'd been last spotted in Kalgera. The bodies of Sally and Wendy Bowman and Thomas Whelan would be discovered around a mile away from their car, under blankets and a canvas. All three victims had been savagely beaten about the head, and they'd been shot. 
Jimmy James and his associates would be brought in at this time to employ their unique skill sets in this harsh desert and scrubland environment. It was said it took detectives from South Australia and the Northern Territory around 30 hours to reach this crime scene, so it was a very remote area. Jimmy and his colleagues discovered tracks leading to where the killer's car had been parked and they were able to ascertain the killer's car was towing a trailer at the time. Witnesses would say they'd seen a Ford Zephyr towing a green trailer travelling north to Alice Springs in the area around the time of the murders. Following this trail, police learned this car had been last seen east of Tennant Creek. This trail would eventually lead police to a man named Raymond John Bailey, a guy who was a casual travelling labourer of sorts, and he had a family, a wife and son, and he was travelling north to look for work through these parts around the time of the murders. And the police proposed robbery was the motive in this case, fuel being so expensive up in the remote north at this time. Bailey had apparently purchased a vehicle, a DeSoto, in Renmark in September, just a month or two earlier. A black DeSoto was said to be of similar appearance to a grey Ford Zephyr. And around this time also, he took a rifle he agreed to buy but never paid for from a guy in Warilla. When police caught up with him, Bailey was working in the Mount Isa Hospital. He was arrested and extradited to stand trial in Adelaide for the murders. I think the rifle is what undid Bailey. He'd agreed to buy this Huntsman rifle from a guy named David Isles. They tested the gun together and shot some rabbits, but Bailey skipped town with the gun before paying for it. Maybe he took it for a trial for a few days, I'm not sure. But detectives would later have Isles take them to where they'd done some target practice on the rabbits. They collected bullet casings and these would match those found at the scene of the sundown murders. Along with all of the other circumstantial evidence and testimony from Bailey's own wife, saying that she'd seen blood on the stock of the rifle the following day, pretty much sealed his fate. Raymond John Bailey was tried, convicted and hanged in Adelaide jail on the 24th of June 1958. Prior to his execution, interestingly, Bailey got a stay of execution where he claimed that he'd killed the real killer at sundown in self-defence. Now, he'd signed a confession too at this point, so he was going back on that. He'd flown back to sundown with the police in attempts to locate this alleged real killer's body. After a three and a half hour search, they were unable to locate the body of a guy Bailey allegedly stabbed to death when he'd stumbled across a guy stealing Sally Bowman's shoes. Bailey said, I have nothing more to say. So that was that. But the case of the sundown murders lives on. Investigative journalist Stephen Bishop has campaigned for a pardon of Bailey posthumously, alleging police corruption at the time and contradictory evidence, the main points being the murder weapon, which was never located, shoe prints at the scene, which were markedly bigger than Bailey's, an allegedly coerced confession from Bailey after hearing his wife crying, to which the police allegedly said, sign this and we'll leave her alone, autopsy results indicating the victims had been shot post-beating while lying on the ground, which didn't align with Bailey's version of shooting them in the back as they ran off, along with the car descriptions, which weren't identical but probably similar, one could argue. We won't delve much deeper than that, as it doesn't pertain to Jimmy James's involvement and what the trackers did in this case, but it's an interesting point. As I understand, Bishop's petition to the Governor of South Australia hasn't gained the momentum he would have liked, I printed and read through this petition, there's certainly some reasonable points in there, and possibly a few cherry-picked facts to support his contention, but I think it'd be hard to know so far down the track now, especially without knowing the details of what led police to Bailey and the other supporting evidence they had. But as I said, James and the trackers' involvement in this drew widespread attention, as they really discovered the crime scene after the RAAF found the car, and then practically identified the type of vehicle and the fact it was towing a trailer. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips and adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. In 1958, not long after the Sundown murders, Jimmy James would be called in to help his colleague, Albert Anunga, track down the murderer of Neville Montgomery Lord, who'd been shot and killed while sleeping in his bed around 9.30pm on November 23rd, 1958. Lord had been shot dead with a three hundred three rifle, and the culprit had threatened Lord's wife thereafter before fleeing the homestead, which was located in Pine Valley, South Australia, about 160 kilometres from Renmark. Detective Max Jones from Renmark got the first call reporting the shooting in the middle of the night during a thunderstorm. Jones had used Aboriginal trackers successfully for the past five years since his placement at Renmark, so when he got this call... The first call he made in response was to the Girard Mission, organising transport for a tracker to come out and assist the police in the manhunt for the suspect. The suspect was a man named James Whelan Brown, and from reports, the police pretty much knew him from the get-go, presumably because he'd been identified by Lord's wife. On this occasion, it wasn't Jimmy James who was immediately available to begin tracking Brown, but his colleague Albert Ananga. By the time Ananga got there, police and searchers had already spent hours trying to make out the tracks around the homestead, but they'd become confused by the footprints of volunteers, searchers and various animal tracks, combined with some heavy rainfall from the aforementioned thunderstorm, and they had failed to make any progress on tracking the suspect. Ananga got straight to it when he arrived, and in a short time had identified the tracks of the culprit leading into the wilderness around 300 metres from the Pine Valley Station homestead. Anunga told Detective Jones that the murderer was wearing boots that were too big for him. By day two, the search had made its way into the harsh outback as the suspect fled on foot, with Anunga leading the search party, which had been joined by another two trackers from Port Augusta. Detective Jones had the search party employ a leapfrogging system, which consisted of a wide semicircle set up with Anunga leading the way. If tracks appeared to go in a particular direction, a sub-party led by a tracker would peel off up ahead to identify and pick up the tracks, thereby making up ground on the killer. Tensions were beginning to simmer at this point as the massive manhunt sprawled to include searches on foot, horseback and in vehicles, who all combed through the humid and boggy conditions in search for the murderer. By the end of day two and rolling into day three, it appeared that Brown was heading towards the New South Wales border in the direction of Wentworth. Anunga said to Detective Jones at one point, Boss, this bloke's playing funny buggers with us. He's walking along the bottom wire of fences, holding the top wire to avoid making tracks, but I can see where he's pulled the wire through along the fence line. Anunga also pointed out where Brown had stopped to rest under a tree at one point, and somehow knew what shoulder he was carrying his rifle on, as well as finding a lolly wrapper Brown discarded and a burnt match stick the alleged killer had also dropped. Despite the steady progress being made, Detective Jones was starting to cough heat from other police members and those higher up in management roles about the lack of a speedy result in a few days. Frustrations were surfacing within the ranks to the point where, at one stage, there was a disagreement between Ananga and some of the police trailing him. Jones intervened and learned the police thought the trackers had jacked up on them, wanting to double back around when they wanted to continue following the suspect to the New South Wales border. 
Anunga told Jones that the suspect had indeed doubled back on his tracks, heading back in a different direction now, and pointed out a spot where he'd stopped at one point after hearing something, possibly a search vehicle. Jones said to Anunga, You're the boss when we're on the tracks. Let's keep moving. And he reassigned the police officers to another task. By this time, Anunga ascertained that the suspect, Brown, had discarded his boots and his rifle, making it more difficult to spot his tracks. But Anunga managed to spot a bit of depressed pig grass said to be no more than a pinhead large, something no one else had spotted, which kept them going in the right direction. But with no results coming to the end of day four now, Jones was dealing with aggravated phone calls from his bosses, suggesting he'd been carried away with the tracker's fantasies and proposing that Brown was probably up in Queensland somewhere by now. They gave Jones one more day. So Jones had a word with Anunga, and the tracker suggested they bring in his brother-in-law, Daniel Mudu, and his cousin, Jimmy James, to help in the search. James and Mudu, alongside Anunga, sprung into action and started tracking at a rapid pace. This was as dawn broke on day five of the hunt. Heavy rainfall did little to deter the trackers, and James quickly identified that Brown was starting to fatigue, and from his prints, was heading into the sand hills in search of water. Using the leapfrogging technique, areas up ahead where water was located were pounced upon, and at approximately 9.50am on November the 28th, John Whelan Brown was apprehended by police near Canegrass Station, around 60 kilometres southwest of Pine Valley, and he had indeed stolen a pair of boots that were too big for him, as Anunga initially suggested. And in the pictures I saw, Brown was wearing a fleece-lined leather jacket when he was apprehended. The guy would have been fucking roasting traipsing the desert in that thing. Interestingly, after this, a white volunteer searcher who was supposedly an expert bushman and tracker queried Jimmy James on how they'd tracked Brown when he himself hadn't spotted a single sign of a track leading in the direction they'd followed. The bushman wondered if the trackers were operating more on instinct than actual physical tracks. James showed the bushman a specific hog bush up ahead and it took several minutes of constant looking and intense concentration for the master bushman to eventually spot one faint outline of a footprint in built-up sand around the bottom of the bush, which had been disrupted by rainfall. This was the sort of track James would spot and follow at a pace of 5 to 10 kilometres per hour. The media coverage of the tracker's success in the Pine Valley murder hunt was broad, but still, James and his colleagues didn't get the praise they deserved. And while these jobs probably helped them feel somewhat more accepted in white society, they were still underpaid and underappreciated. Detective Max Jones continued to use James, Anunga and Mudu many times throughout the 50s, 60s and 70s, until his retirement in 1976. Jones wrote a book entitled Tracks, detailing many stories and cases the trackers had been involved in. One such tale involving Jimmy James told of how he helped track a three-year-old girl who'd wandered off into a nearby scrubland area from her home. Jimmy followed her tracks for an hour, stopped, and said to Jones, OK, boss, she's over the hill there, sitting under the tree. Jones found her exactly in that spot and later asked Jimmy how he knew that, to which James replied, I don't know exactly, boss. I just seen a picture of her in my head. Jones asked Jimmy why he'd stop before getting to her and Jimmy said, Sometimes we hear people say to their kids, Watch out, the black man will get you. We didn't want her to get a fright when two blackfellas walked over the hill. On October the 23rd, 1966, a young eight-year-old Wendy Pfeiffer had disappeared around 500 metres from her family home in Mylor, South Australia, when taking her dog Bonnie for a walk. Jimmy James was called in a couple of days later on the 25th, along with his colleague Daniel Mudu, to track down the girl's remains. The suspect, a man named Neville Doling, had turned himself into police already, and no one held much hope of finding the young girl alive two days later after Doling had described stabbing her three times in the chest and dumping her body near Mount Bold Reservoir. Now, as we said at the start of this episode, we have covered this case in detail on last week's episode, so if you haven't listened to that, we'd encourage you to go back and check that out for the details of what transpired. 
because it gives you a good introduction to Jimmy James and his talents. But as we said, this was a huge case at the time and it had a happy ending, which resulted in James and Moodoo locating Wendy Pfeiffer alive after a few hours of searching. The girl had miraculously survived and forged her way through around 20 kilometres of dense scrub, braving two cold nights in the elements before the trackers located her and reunited her with her family. Wendy Pfeiffer would later say she wouldn't have survived another night if Jimmy James hadn't found her, and the Pfeiffer family would present Jimmy with a gold medallion, which he wore until his passing and considered it one of his most prized possessions. Into the 70s and 80s, Jimmy would define his tracking skills to be particularly exceptional in tracking down escaped convicts, which was a very dangerous task compared to locating missing people. He'd work with Max Jones until his retirement, as we said, and then forge a good working relationship with Jones's successor, Bill Newman, in the years thereafter. This was after a bumpy start with Newman, who had his own ideas on how to run the trackers, meeting the whole thing with a suspicious mind to begin with. But Newman soon came around after being amazed time after time on the accuracy of Jimmy's theories. There's many stories throughout this time of Jimmy tracking down convicts, and they are always punctuated with his usual jovial attitude and sense of humour throughout the ordeal. One time Jimmy tracked down some escapees and was convinced they were hiding in some nearby river reeds, despite police officers disagreeing with him at the time. The following day, police would catch the escapees attempting to hitch a ride, and they had indeed been in the reeds that Jimmy said. Jimmy helped to track arsonists over this time too, and one time even took part in the chase of a pair of escapees, who'd been tracked to a makeshift campsite in the bush where they lay asleep. Police went back into the nearby town of Taplin and retrieved the local football team who were practising at the time, and together with a few police officers and James, they sprung the criminal campers and chased them down as they attempted to flee. But while Jimmy's successes had garnered positive media attention and gained respect from his police force counterparts in Jones and Newman, things were about to reach a whole new level of public hysteria when the tracker would be called in to find notorious child killer and rapist James Beauregard Smith, who'd escaped from prison on Sunday the 22nd of August 1982 while participating in the CFS Firefighting Championships located in Riverton, South Australia. Smith was serving a life sentence at the Itala prison for the murder of nine-year-old Craig Holland, only five years earlier in 1977. The community outcry was huge at the time, and the public were angry and fearful that a monster like this could have escaped in such circumstances. The pursuit of James Beauregard Smith would be Jimmy's biggest challenge to date, but before we get into that, let's take a few minutes to discuss Smith and what he'd been convicted of and allegedly reported to have committed at this time. Because we are talking about a dangerous monster here, and I think by highlighting the type of guy he was, really throws light on the dangerous nature of the pursuit Jimmy and the police would undertake. James George Beauregard Smith was born in 1943. On the 19th of May 1975, Smith allegedly assaulted a 14-year-old girl with the intent to rape her in the North Sydney suburb of Mona Vale. A short time later, having not been apprehended for this act, Smith would make his way to Woodside in South Australia, where he'd begin an affair with a married woman named Sandra Holland. This would be ongoing for several months, until on July the 13th, 1977, while at the Holland family home, Sandra told Smith that she no longer wanted to continue the affair, as she decided to reunite with the father of her two boys, Craig and Scott, aged 9 and 11 respectively. The boys were bathing in the bathroom at the time of this conversation. Smith lost it, punching Sandra and knocking her unconscious. He then strangled her to death. Sandra's son, Craig, ran into the room from the bathroom, presumably hearing the commotion, and Smith marched the nine-year-old boy back to the bathroom, 
where he proceeded to drown both Craig and Scott in the bathtub. Sandra and Scott's bodies would be discovered by police buried under leaves and branches nearby, and Craig was found buried under the floorboards of the family home. On March 16, 1978, Smith was sentenced to life in prison for the murders. So as we said, while participating in the CFS Firefighting Championships on Sunday the 22nd of August 1982, Smith made a break for it and escaped custody. The community was in fear, the media was on standby, and everyone was awaiting this monster's recapture, if they could find him. There were some supposedly reliable reports indicating Smith had been dropped off by an accomplice just north of Renmark on Monday the 23rd, the next day. These reports from police intelligence came into question when Jimmy James joined the police to lead the search under the direction of Bill Newman. James said that he didn't think, from his initial observations, that Smith had been dropped off at this location, but in an area a further 20 kilometres to the northeast, near the settlement of Kultong. Newman, having worked with James for some time now and with great success, accepted the tracker's gut feeling and the search was moved to the small settlement of Kultong. Although nothing conclusive was discovered before nightfall, the following morning a witness would confirm Jimmy's gut feeling, confirming they had knowledge that Smith had been dropped off in the small town of Kultong, and they had a precise drop-off point too. It didn't take Jimmy long to discover tracks north of the new drop-off site and begin tracking Smith into the wilderness. A tuft of grass, a dislodged pebble imprints from heel marks, all leading Jimmy and police in an easterly direction. Jimmy was able to distinguish from the prisoner's footprints when he changed hands with the bag he was carrying. Eventually, the party would stumble across a small campfire that Smith had used no more than 24 hours earlier, Jimmy estimated, by looking at the charred wood and assessing a nearby can of drink Smith had left behind. By early morning on Wednesday the 25th, Jimmy had led the search party to Rainy Island and they were only 12 hours behind Smith now, who Jimmy was now referring to as the madman due to the length Smith was going to to confuse the tracking party, leaving red herrings and walking in small circles. At one point without explanation, Jimmy abandoned the trail on the island, saying that Smith had left and was now heading towards the South Australian New South Wales border Police detectives doubted this and wanted to continue searching the island, but once again, Jimmy's hunch proved to be correct. The search party drove to the New South Wales border and sure enough, discovered fresh tracks no more than a few hours old. They pursued these tracks and Jimmy noted his steps were getting shorter, indicating the madman was getting tired now. It was Saturday morning by this point. As Jimmy led the police and searchers through desert terrain and patches of scrubland, they inexplicably came to a dead halt when Jimmy turned on the spot, exclaiming, Stop here, madman here. Take dog and gun to tree, he behind it, sitting down, resting. Sure enough, there was James Beauregard Smith, resting under the tree exactly where Jimmy said when the police approached and apprehended him. Jimmy had pursued Smith relentlessly for over six days through the harsh, barren scrubland walking over 100 kilometres to catch the dangerous escapee. Beauregard Smith would only get an additional 12-month sentence for his escape, which meant he was released from prison in 1994. Only weeks later, he raped a girl at Cudley Creek in South Australia, at which time he'd be imprisoned indefinitely. And years after this, former South Australian Premier Mike Rann vowed that Beauregard Smith who'd been diagnosed a sexual psychopath by this time, would never be released due to the danger he presented to the community. This is the first time Jimmy would be publicly proclaimed a hero for locating such a dangerous escapee that the broader media was aware of, unlike many of the other escapees he'd tracked down that they didn't know about. But along with the newfound appreciation for his skills would come cries of him being grossly underpaid and shamelessly exploited. The tracker received minimum wage, as set by the government legislation at the time, of $6.50 per hour, a rate many claimed would be triple if he was white and performing the same dangerous tasks with the skill set he had. But the public opinions were met privately by those who worked closely with Jimmy, with regular bonus payments and gifts where they could, 
despite the clearly exploitative working conditions. But it was people like Bill Newman who would inevitably campaign for an increased minimum wage for Jimmy, which would end up being roughly equating to a police constable's salary. This whole thing would go on and on for some time, and there'd be all sorts of government reports on this, one-off consultancy fees paid to Jimmy. And Jimmy wasn't the one pushing for this, but his rate was barely covering costs, that's for sure. And he got some heat from his community too, who believed he should be better compensated, and all of the other trackers too, for that matter. Into the 1980s, Jimmy would begin to receive widespread recognition for his craft, as the public finally caught up to those who worked with Jimmy and respected him for many years already, in acknowledging the skills he had and the hard work he'd done. Jimmy would continue crafting boomerangs and would become a champion thrower and exhibitionist. He would welcome a couple of grandchildren into his family in the 80s, but sadly, all of his children were walking aimless paths, affected by the ravages of alcoholism. Jimmy's wife Lily would sadly pass in 1983 from cancer, and in a devastating series of blows, by 1987, all three of Jimmy's children would die in their 20s and 30s from different causes, all essentially leading back to alcoholism. The pain and torment Jimmy experienced during this time is difficult to imagine, but the man remained vibrant and jovial, at least outwardly, as he went on into his retirement years, having moved away from the Gerard mission to less painful surroundings without the haunting memories of his children's early passings. Jimmy would receive the Order of Australia Medal for recognition of his services. He would see out his days following many high-profile Australian criminal cases, occasionally helping, occasionally offering his services, and he'd finish up living with his nephew in the suburb of Elizabeth, spending most of his time in the lounge room as he grew older. Jimmy watched on in his twilight years as the art of tracking began to die out and young Aboriginals lost interest in the cultural connections he'd always cherished and were lured away by material goods, televisions, cars, KFC, etc. Jimmy would suffer a series of strokes in his 70s and eventually, while in hospital, would pass away quietly on the 27th of October 1991. As a tracker, he was called a grandmaster of the art. His life was one of survival, clashing cultures, adversity, tenacity, sorrow, achievement, and finally, recognition. And the man always did what he did with a smile on his dial, a jovial chuckle, and a witty quip. So here's to the Dreamtime Man of Gerard. Wow. The skill set Jimmy had and the precision to which he executed it was something else. There are parts of this story and the way he found people that almost seemed like magic, parts where he said that he didn't know how he knew that girl was sitting on the hill. He just saw it in his head. The level of instinct that he had built with all the learnings that he had about tracking was just amazing. What an art. The skills and the way Australian Indigenous people understand the land and respect it is so, so cool. Um, This does feel like a complicated story to retell because of the time it happened and what was happening to Indigenous people, as we touched on earlier. Growing up in missions and the experience of the Indigenous people was so problematic and I'm so sorry that they had to go through that. I hope we told this story in a respectful way. We both learnt things about Australian history researching this and we were both really in awe of the person Jimmy James was and what he did for the community. I'm so glad that someone like him kept learning from other Indigenous people and grew up to make a difference in so many people's lives. Jimmy James was a true Australian hero. He aided in the capture of many criminals, many more tales than we've been able to cover here, and that saved numerous lives. He also saved the lives of many lost people and gathered evidence in his later years for police prosecutions. I think it's a human thing to want to label people as either good or bad, the best or the worst, but in reality there's good and bad in all of us, just to varying degrees. And it's the decisions we make that define us. And you know, we don't learn in school about Jimmy James here in Australia. We learn about Ned Kelly, and then we hear the debate about whether Ned was a police killer or a Robin Hood type underdog fighting for the cause. 
when I think in reality we should be spending more time talking about the Jimmy Jameses of this world and celebrating what they've done for us. Because if you were to measure the good and the bad, there's no doubt Jimmy James had more good in him than the vast majority of people, both before, during and after his time, to this very day. So it's been a privilege to learn about him, his life and his contributions to our country. He was an inspiring man and an Australian legend who's not yet, but I hope one day, a staple in our history books. Um, If anyone wants to read more about Indigenous Australians, there are Indigenous museums in most states in Australia. In Melbourne, there's the Bunjaka Aboriginal Cultural Centre. Commonground.org.au is a great website that has a collection of original and curated learnings, articles on culture, history and reconciliation. Closing the Gap is a great resource focused on improving the lives of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and it's a project funded by the Victorian government. So let's move right along. I mean, I feel pretty good after talking about Jimmy and the things he did, but um, happy thoughts for the week. Sean, do you have a happy thought? I do. So as you know, we had our second little daughter about three months ago now and our first daughter never took a bottle. So that was very demanding on my wife for the first 12 months. But exciting news, our little girl um, actually took a bottle this week. So Ah. that's really, really great for my wife and for I. I'm going to be able to help out a bit more on, on that front this time, which is good. So that's my happy thought. Exciting. That is a good one for the whole family. (laughs) Yeah. Um, My happy thought is that I saw some friends on the weekend that I haven't seen in way too long. Um, One of those times where life just got in the way and all of a sudden it had been six months um, and they're friends that I want to see all the time. And I just happened to text them on Sunday they were free for a part of the day in between one thing and another and I went and saw them and hung out with them for a really solid block and it was just the best and I left just feeling so good. So I'm just so grateful that things aligned and it, we didn't wait till 2022 to catch up. <laughs> um, so moving right along, we have a new five-star review as well. This is a great review. It was so great. Yeah. Um, so this is from Britain. 1214. It's called Breath of Fresh Air and the review reads, I love true crime and listen to many podcasts. I'm always excited to see a new one pop up, but more often than not, I listen and end up disappointed for various reasons. Not this time though. True Blue is so well done, well researched and respectful to those involved in the crime. They tell the story nice and to the point, just the facts and I love that. I just listened to the Wendy Pfeiffer episode and not only was it nice to hear a new story, it was delivered so well. What an incredible story. I can't wait to hear the story covering the tracker Jimmy James. I also love, love the happy thoughts segment at the end of each podcast episode. It's easy to overlook the power of a single happy thought and I love that you all take the time to do this. Keep up the good work. I'm looking forward to each episode. That was awesome. Thank you so much. It's so thoughtful and so... Just well written. It's just yeah. I think that's better written than our podcast episodes. <laughs> it hundred <so>. percent is. <laughs> Thank you so much for the review and taking the time. Um, it not only helps us, but it genuinely means so much that you would write something like that. Thank yeah, you. It makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. So thank you very much. It does. And one last thing: the email and socials. Don't forget, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail and our Facebook group is. True Blue True Crime dash podcast. And you can find us on Instagram with the handle True Blue Crime. Um, we'd love to get social with you guys. <laughs> Sold. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you very much for listening once again. Uh, we will be back next week for another episode of True Blue True Crime. Bye.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 